Hi Samia. Hi Bernard, how are you doing? I'm well. So this is the third pod- third episode of the podcast. I'm just so wanted to ask you, did you stay up for the Apple event last week? Yeah, yeah, I did. I I tried to follow the live stream and I definitely followed the live blogs. It was it was an interesting event. I think that did you meet your expectation? For most Apple events, the expectation is what's been rumored for for months in advance, right? I think the only thing that that hadn't leaked before was what the iWatch looked like. Pretty much everything else had leaked. So yeah, I I, I think it's hard for an Apple event to miss expectations anymore. You know, this event was actually held at the Flint Center where the original Macintosh and I think the iPod as well, right, was announced there. Oh no. Yeah, no. I think so. Yeah. So was it? I I think is the Macintosh definitely the true. Yeah. But I'm not sure whether uh, the I think the iPod was somewhere else, somewhere in LA if I didn't remember wrongly. But anyway, oh, okay. um, I think there was it was quite easy to dissect down because there were only three major announcements: the iPhones, yeah. Yeah. Apple Pay, yeah. and then the watch, Apple Watch. Mm-hmm. So I guess it is is quite interesting. I I sort of just want to sort of hear your sense. What do you think about the three products or services? And then we proceed to talk about a little bit about what's going to be the impact in Asia. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll start with the iPhones because that's the the easiest one to handle. So uh, I definitely think Apple met expectations there. Everyone was expecting pretty much a larger screen uh, with pretty much the same pixel density to uh, to sort of catch Apple up with uh, at least in terms of look and feel uh, against the other high-end Android flagships. So that was one area where they were where they were lacking. That was screen size, and then there they've caught up. And the second, the, the interesting part about the 5.5-inch device is that it might actually cannibalize sales of the iPad mini, which plays into Apple's hands because the iPad mini is, I think, one of the lowest margin devices Apple has. So they're glad to cannibalize that. So if, if uh, more people buy the 5.5-inch tablet and they lose out sales of the iPad mini, Apple's probably the happiest company in the world. So you think that they will cannibalize um, iPad mini, but what about the high-end Android? Because the screen size was kind of Apple saying, okay, we hear you. We want to now make the larger screen phones for you. Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely going to have an impact, particularly in uh, mature markets and particularly in uh, for Samsung. In the US, especially, right? Samsung is the dominant Android vendor, and pretty much all of their sales there are high-end, large-screen devices. Mm. And given Apple's brand cachet there and the fact that they've caught up in screen size. Uh, it could have a, a major, major impact on Samsung. I thought the interesting number I might want to pull out is that based on la- one of the reports last year, they have 63% of the Android market. So about most of the um, developed countries in Asia, I mean the developed cities, let me just use cities as a, as a gauge. It will probably be uh, Seoul, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Singapore. You know, in those cities where you see a very high density of uh, what I call the phablets, the Samsung Note and uh-huh. the uh, Samsung Galaxy 5, which is actually a larger screen phones. So uh-huh. the, the I think that, that that will be the first point, right? I think the high-end Android market is going to, to have, there will be some shift in terms of um, the consumers may be changing phones. But what about the middle yeah. end then? With respect uh, to the phones. On the high-end, I think it's going to have a significant impact. On the middle and uh, low-end, I, I wouldn't be so sure. 
because uh, when you look at the iPhone 6 and the iPhone 6 Plus, right, they are effectively the high-end devices. Uh, the iPhone 5S goes to the middle end, the, the 5C goes to effectively middle end, not really low end. And uh, Xiaomi has always been competing with, the, uh, with Apple's low end. And at least so far, they've been fairly successful in Asia as well, right? Uh, well, competing against the lowest end phone that Apple has to offer. So at that level, I'm not sure it's going to have a major impact. Xiaomi's uh, offerings of extremely high quality phones at very, very low prices probably still has a bit of an upper hand. But on the high end, I think it's going to have a huge impact. Right. So the so Apple is basically really trying to consolidate the high end market basically and, and basically is out of bounds for any high end Android device to enter basically in the Asian markets as a whole. Uh, Possibly. One of, the, one of the things I've heard analysts say is that uh, the only slice of the high-end market that Apple doesn't own is those with large screen devices and now they've catered to that. So now uh, it's reasonable to expect that, that would have a they'd have a significant impact on that last remaining chunk of the market. Yep, and if you look at just Chinese market alone, which is actually about 25% of their current revenue model, they are also tied. I think that, that high-end the uh, high-end site for the larger screens also cater to the Chinese market as well. So that will actually be very, very significant in terms of that. And, and, and that's, hmm? that's one interesting area to explore, right? So in the Chinese market, Apple is clearly a, a status symbol because of the pricing model that's followed there. Owning an Apple carries a certain degree of status with it. Right. Whereas open, owning a Samsung doesn't quite have the same status, right? So to, to the new Apple buyers, they don't care about status as much as they do about functionality. So I'm wondering, are those the kind of buyers that would be tied into an ecosystem? It's just a question. I'm not. I'm not sure what the answer is. But right. I think it's an interesting question. Well, there there is always um, this. There is two, there are two groups actually. There is a group that actually get locked into the Apple ecosystem where they're willing uh -huh. to pay and buy for apps, and then there uh -huh. is another group that thinks that they can get everything for free. Which, yeah. which, which is they are, they are not really, they are actually, they can actually afford it, but they just felt that Apple is constantly siphoning cash off them. So they, 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 they moved from Apple to Samsung when, when the high-end Android phone was available. I think the question is, what is the transition cost to switch back from Android to Apple? I, I can tell you significantly to transition from an Apple to Android is actually far more higher cost for yeah, the yeah. consumer uh, yeah, than the other way around. Yeah, because people tend to buy more apps on the Apple ecosystem. The, I think the proportion of paid apps as well is much larger uh, in I/O on iOS, correct? Correct, correct. And 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 it's about at least four x. And if you, I mean, if you just yeah. look at the the dollars that's paid out, is I think Apple was something around like ten billion, and Android was only about five five billion billion. Yeah. So so you, there is you can actually tell where the developers are actually heading towards basically. Yeah. How about Micromax? I mean, Xiaomi, I think you touched on it. Would they be affected yeah. because they're still in the middle end side? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think it's going to have uh, an impact on them at all. And the same for Micromax. Micromax uh, may actually be uh, punching a little lower than Xiaomi is. So I think they're completely insulated. Well, I thought I should just, um, since we were just talking a bit about four or five hours ago on the Google blog, they finally launched Android 1. Right, yeah, today. the $105 so smartphone. Now it's $105. I thought it was $100 when they <laughs> during the, the, well, okay, $5 difference. Well, yeah. How much rupees is that, basically? Uh, in rupees, I think it's about 6600 Wow. That was the last number I saw. 
Okay, so that what about the Android one? Would it hit into the low end market? So we, we have an interesting conversation on Apple, but yeah. what about the Android yeah. to Micromax and Xiaomi? I think uh, Micromax is actually a, a player on on Android one. They've they've been one of the earliest uh, sign-ons along with Carbon and Spice, I think. Uh, so I think it, it plays into their hands a little bit. Micromax still has some firmware firmware issues with their devices, some quality issues, and and now that uh, the software is com- software part is completely handled by Google, uh, they really shoot up on the quality benchmarks and. All of a sudden, they find themselves themselves competing with a Samsung phone that's probably three times or four times as expensive as as, as that device is. So uh, it's definitely going to have a major impact on on the low end market. I think you'll see a rush of low end OEMs trying to sign on and become becoming Android One partners. And uh, for Google, the primary aim is to try and put a quality benchmark at the low end so that the the engagement with Google services is still comparable at that end. If you adjust for the type of consumer. But uh, the indirect impact will on Samsung and higher end OEMs will be significant. Right. So that only leads up to the middle end market. So Xiaomi and Micromax will basically have to try to be fighting out for that market. It, yeah. it brings me to another question. So it's kind of the question that we this we kind of touch on a little bit. So I mean, I have this argument that Apple should be a Louis Vuitton, right? Because it's a yeah, brand. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a bit similar, like a Gucci, Chanel. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. in Asia, people look to Apple as an aspiring brand. It's like this. People in, in China, I think in the early 2000, people buy fake LV bags, right? Yeah. But an LV was having problems clamping down with piracy and everything. And subsequently, what happened is that the Chinese consumer got wealthy. So they move upstream because they have always aspired to a Louis Vuitton bag. They move towards the Louis Vuitton bag and basically leaving the so-called the middle-end markets dead, basically. So there's this bifurification where the, the, the high-end brands get better and the low-end low players will start to cannibalize in those guys that's owning the middle, making the middle guy, which is what's happening to Samsung, basically. And yeah, of course, yeah. what Samsung did is to try to move to the high end, right? Yeah. So yeah. I guess the, well, how would that play for? I mean, Xiaomi and Micromax may eventually become like Samsung, where will they yeah. try? They will try to move upstream too. So yeah. th- is, does that mean that actually in Asia it's actually very difficult to de- develop an aspiring brand, as compared to in the US where you start off already as a brand, when you enter you can still be able to take on the or a particular Western brand like even Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Chanel, they basically own that high-end space. Do you foresee that there will be actually brands within Asia that can actually tackle against that? I mean, the last company that ever did that was Sony, I think. That's an interesting question and it, it, I think it has multiple facets. In Asia in particular, uh, because of the size of the market, uh, Ben Thompson calls it the Thompson's rule, right? Where large markets, it's the numbers that matter, not the percentages. I think there's some truth to that definitely, but uh, you also have uh, a situation in Asia where uh, because of the size of the market, you have a ton of brands that are trying to cater to different segments. So in fact, you might see a different level of innovation happen in Asia targeting those segments than you would ha- than you would see in the US. So well, uh, I th- while you, what you said is definitely right where 
brands like Louis Vuitton can defend their their high end position much more effectively because of the type of consumer present in the US. But it's also true that the low end brands that uh, that spring up in Asia that that try and move up market don't really have the same cachet when they start out in the US as they do in Asia. So the Asian market kind of fosters that kind of competition. Correct. So, but then the thing is that the middle they have to go upstream, right? So yeah, they I do. Think, they do. And, and that, that and that's the real kind of escalator for them to jump over because they 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 were traditionally never a a brand to start off with in the first place. I think it's a kind of an advantage if you are a Western company and brand, and I think this is what most Asian companies typically struggle with. At 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 a at a later stage when they evolve, I think Samsung is actually reaching that kind of uh. Uh, status for Samsung, uh, uh, at least in technology, right? I, I would say that the quality of product and the brand uh, are interrelated. The brand is very, very difficult to create a brand that's completely independent from your uh, from your technology or, or the quality of of your products. In when you when you look at Louis Vuitton, right? The quality of bags is usually not a not a major consideration. Whether you someone picks up a, a Louis Vuitton or a Louis Vuitton knockoff. They're not really picking it on the basis of the quality of the quality. They're they're picking it on the on the basis of the brand, correct? Oh, I I I'm sure that the ladies out there would disagree with you out there <laughs> because of the yeah, the particular leather they use, the zip that they take, and yeah, um, but a lot of Louis Vuitton knockoffs come from pretty much the same manufacturing processes, right? That's well, how they become Louis Vuitton knockoffs. That's right. Yeah, and but but when we look at a company like Samsung that doesn't really have software at its core. It's difficult for them to move up market beyond a point. I mean, they they can improve hardware to the greatest possible extent because they really own the supply chain. But the moment they move into soft into software, they're they're out of their element. So so I think it's hard for a company like Samsung to move up market beyond a point. But if you're a company like Xiaomi, uh, there it gets a little bit different. Last time we talked about it, right? It's been founded by uh, former Apple and Google employees, so they pretty much have software and services right at their core. And hardware is just incidental to what they're trying to do. So for a company like that, if they if they do play their cards correctly and 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 move uh, expand their horizons internationally, they might be able to move up market more effectively than Samsung has. So you believe that the up market actually has something with their software competency? Is that is that the case? Yeah. Then I'll I give you a counter example. Then I, the conversation okay. last week with Sirkan, we talked about Sony, and yeah, the PlayStation would date would die. And then uh-huh. the console will move into the TV. And because they already built the phone, the uh, TV, they are able uh-huh. to still have the console living on in terms for the consumer. Whereas you have a situation where you have Microsoft with Xbox will have a problem, Nintendo will have a problem. Because they but then they, you, yeah. But then when I look at when I look at that particular example, right? Console mm. specifically run on a razors and blades kind of model where yep. the hardware is given out mostly at cost and uh, the games is where the company makes up most of the money, and on top of that, consoles are kind of a platform play where uh, where companies need to develop for that. So it's not a pure modular hardware kind of situation, right? So it's difficult for someone to disrupt PlayStation directly with another console. Uh, I think what's disrupting consoles instead are handheld devices like smartphones. Right. Now then, let me then I think now we probably can segue to the other two. Announcements. I think one oh, of yeah. them is Apple Pay. I, I think we yeah. talk a lot about handsets, at least on the high end, middle end market. But I thought maybe we I should just try to bring in because I think we're in a very interesting discussion here, talking about the 
high end and the low end, uh, the mi high, medium, low end uh, segmentation of, of the Asian market, right? Yeah. yeah. I think the Apple Pay, what, what, what do you think about the Apple Pay? Because I think it's going to be just US centric for a while before it actually comes to Asia. And then there is the watch, which I think is kind of the real, real buzz of the event. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, start with Apple Pay. Right? Mm. Definitely a very interesting service. I think the video was very, very compelling, especially for a technology earlier adopter, the ability to just tap on a, on a screen, press a button and you're done. That's, uh, that's very convenient. But uh, th there is a bit of an issue there. I mean, I, let's put the US centric uh, piece aside because Apple is uh, a, a very significant portion of Apple's user base is, uh, is in the US. So uh, most of their services start out US centric. And if they if they take off, that's when they look to expand. Passbook is an example, right? Mm -hmm. Where it, it was very, very US centric, but uh, that, that's a different case. Uh, so one of the issues I think with uh, mobile payment solutions so far is that uh, they don't really solve uh, a pain point. The the fact is that for most consumers, credit cards are good enough. They're, they're not a really difficult process. You give a card to a, a retailer, he swipes it and you're done. Uh, and that's why what's happened is a lot of consumers don't really see enough value in moving to a mobile payment solution. So even if they have a NFC uh, payment enabled phone and they are in a store where they have where NFC payments are enabled, they still instinctively reach out for their card instead of their phone. Even though you know people like you and me might try and might go might go for a phone, most consumers would not. And that's why I think the the success or failure of any mobile payment solution, including Apple Pay, will depend on overcoming this challenge. So there's a couple of companies that have managed to overcome it and it's in a uh, little bit of a different way. The examples I'd like to use are Starbucks and WeChat. So Starbucks actually integrated their loyalty card into their payment solution with their app and uh, anytime you use your phone to pay it gives you multiple stars and when you reach certain levels it gives you rewards free refills etc so it's so what happened is the loyalty program and the gamification aspect of it really drove mobile payments for startup for starbucks and i think they last year they generated about 1 billion in revenue from i mean 1 billion of revenue was through mobile payments and that's about 11% of all, of all their in-store payments, which, which has been pretty successful. And then the other example is WeChat. Uh, I'm sure you're more familiar with this than I am. Uh, yeah. You know, they've, they've got brands like Pacific Coffee on, on them, uh, on, on there as a brand they page. And you guys, caps as well. Yeah, and you can uh, make a transaction before you ever get, it, get into the, the coffee store. So in that case, you're, you're kind of beating, beating the card to the punch where if I'm at home, I, I want to order a coffee, I, there's no situation where I can take out my card and pay. So I just make a payment on WeChat and then I walk into a store. Do you know so, that WeChat can send money too? Yeah, yeah, I, I heard about that. And, um, um, so during, you know, you know the Chinese custom of uh, giving red packets during Chinese New Year, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, at the, this year, Chinese New Year, just as a test, given that, you know, it's my day job to, to think about application, mobile applications, I actually uh, did a a test with a friend in China just huh? to send two dollars US okay. dollars across to right. WeChat and it was seamless. Wow, okay. And yeah. That's that, that's a real disruption to existing payment solutions. In yeah, I, I kind of have a this. But coming back to the conversation, I'm so sorry to interrupt yeah. you on this. Oh, no problem. That, that was a useful sidebar. But uh, like, like I said, right, so the, one of the biggest selling points of a payment solution, a mobile payment solution will be if you can add value over the top of it. And that's what's going to make the payment solution really attractive. 
So uh, there, there are some rumors of Apple working with merchants to implement a loyalty program. And uh, if they are doing that, that could be one potential way of, of making this really attractive to, to consumers and really ensuring the factors adopted across the, across the user base. Yep, we heard about that because apparently they already developed something in the merchant side, which I think is either a point of sale solution where that's why there was a conversation between them and a company called Square in the US where they yeah. tried to uh, take the, make an acquisition, but I think Square walked out of it because the valuation for the company was too low. They're trying to get it at $3 billion, I think. Uh, in the last yeah, couple of days, yeah, that was reported in Recode actually on that. So Samir, what do you think about the watch then? Uh, I think the watch is very interesting, uh, mainly from the fact that it brings up so many questions. So I, I think at this point in uh, in the product cycle, it's more important to get those questions right than to look for answers. Because I, I, I know we're going to see a lot of uh, opinions about why it's going to be a huge hit or why it's going to be a huge flop like every new product. I saw but your tweets and I saw your blog posts for the 10 questions for the watch. I have a different theory to this, but I'll let you start first. Okay, all right. So right now, one of the uh, issues that smartwatches in general are having is that uh, nobody is quite sure what they're for. Uh, usually, whenever a new product category comes out uh, that has some potential, it's usually much worse at many, many categories of use cases, but it's usually better at, at some use cases that matter to the, that should eventually matter to the, the mainstream market, right? So as of today, that's why this product category exists isn't very clear. Uh, so for example, the iPad replicated many of the PC's functions, but because the UI was so easy to use, it was actually much better for browsing and playing games for most consumers. So, so for the watch to be potentially useful, it means that the watch uh, should be easier to operate than a smartphone in certain use cases. Uh, we just don't know what those use cases are today. So those need to be discovered. And uh, I think what happens is, the, f the first wave of app developers is definitely going to come to try and discover these use cases or to try and figure out what a killer app for this category is. But uh, what happens to the second wave of developers will, I think, be defined by the first adopters of this, of this device. So normally for an Apple device, you'd expect their adopters to be very tech-savvy enthusiasts. But for the Apple Watch in particular, because of the way they announced it and the fact that they announced a whole collection of it, it seemed like, and because they called fashion bloggers, etc., etc., it seems like they want to cater to the fashion crowd a bit as well. And so we don't really know whether the early adopters of the watch will skew towards enthusiasts or the fashion uh, crowd. And we don't know if there's, a, if there's any overlap between those segments. But the price, and the price model, the pricing, and the models, I think, has that kind of split. I think they they have three models, right? The actual Apple yeah. Watch, the sports. And edition, yeah, right? And edition, yeah. And yeah. clearly, edition is kind of like the doing the Louis Vuitton kind of situation, Correct, right? Yeah. And then the yeah. watch is more like the swatch. I call it medium medium end watch yeah. category, and then the normal yeah. Apple watches for the Apple faithful on that. Yeah. So yeah. that segmentation is quite interesting for me. It's kind of almost like Apple is trying something really different such yeah and actually this i think is a good place to take a sidebar mm. uh we, we discuss, you discussed how apple wants to be the louis vuitton of tech right but the moment mm. i saw that announcement i was thinking maybe they're not trying to be the louis vuitton of tech maybe they're trying to be louis vuitton with tech i think it's a subtle difference but a okay. meaningful one tell, tell, tell me the subtle difference what do you mean by so, louis vuitton with tech then 
So Louis Vuitton off-tech is when they're trying to occupy the highest category of, uh, you know, the highest segment of the market within tech. So, so they're competing against the Samsung and the Xiaomi, etc, etc. That's right. So Louis Vuitton with tech is when they're, maybe they're trying to move directly into the luxury product space. And they're trying to bring bring more tech into it, and try and really trying to see what disruption they can that can happen there. So which where maybe comp- other technology companies cannot follow directly. Right, but that is more a brand situation, right? I mean, you know the Vertu phone. Yeah, I do. Something something of that Vertu. I mean, they are now running on Android, and by the way, there are some of these concierge in Asia still running around for, on on yeah. that. That's actually, if you think about it, is trying to be a Louis Vuitton of tech rather than with tech, isn't it? Because the actual, the actual software and the hardware is not really that important. It's the concierge. Yeah, uh, on one word to it is that uh, I, I think that there as well they're trying to be the Louis Vuitton with tech, but that's probably a, a much, much more niche market. Correct. I think what Apple is trying to do is trying to expand the, the luxury product space and then occupy that. Right, so you, you, you're thinking that there is that, that, that the way they position it is more being with tech rather than off tech, than them yeah. being the high end of tech. Because given yeah. the, all the other products like the Mac, MacBook yeah. Pros, the iPhone, they're always on the high end side. So they're, they're yeah, not and trying that's, to... And that's in technology, right? So I think one of, the, uh, uh, one of the issues is that if we take an iPad as an example, where... Oh, probably over time, maybe over a ten-year period, they they face more and more competition there because because other products start getting better and better. So maybe they see the luxury product space as being more defensible than tech, in the in the long run. I think they see that because of the iPhone in Asia. Possibly. I think I think I think that was why they 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 went into that category. They went after the luxury industry by hiring so many people from that industry. I mean, they hired yeah. the pharmacy yeah. or YSL. You know they. They hire somebody from Tech Hoyer, you know, and and all that. They are they are Burberry, they are, yeah. they are definitely the Burberry, of course, Angela Aaron's. Yeah. They are yeah. definitely positioning themselves to be that. They're going yeah. in the luxury yeah. category, but I think yeah. it was always not sure is how are they going to reposition, position themselves in that in in that luxury business. On, yeah, on yeah, that. that- that will be interesting. I kind of wanted to, since since you mentioned about your 10 questions for the Apple's watch and what's the use case, right? Which is also what Ben Thompson's been talking about in his podcast. Yeah, I noticed that. Uh, so his contention is that the watch does too much. Uh, yes. And, and, does, and doesn't focus on specific use cases. And I think there's something to that. But maybe it's still part of discovering the use cases. Maybe Apple themselves isn't very sure about what the eventual use cases will be. So I actually have this conversation with my wife about it and, and we always have this really like deep conversations about tech and she pointed out something that I, I kind of went on along the Ben Thompson line and said uh-huh. that the way how they announced the watch they didn't have a use case you know the iPhone was very clear all the other yeah, yeah, phones suck right so yeah. we wanted an iPhone but I think she pointed out that the watch announcement was closer to the iPad announcement so I remember, remember when the iPad first came out, um, when they first announced the iPad, I mean, they talk about the post-PC, but I think they didn't, they didn't really clarify what the value proposition of the iPad was. And it was yeah. actually after once the developers came in, it suddenly became a truly media consumption device. I mean, the only success yeah. about the iPad is actually a good media consumption device. It was the right screen, yeah. you can use it as a portable TV, 
you can do yeah. some kind of productivity work and you can yeah. read pretty well okay yeah. and she reckons that i mean she reckons and i actually find this argument appealing that the watch was not actually given a use case and it's similar to the way how apple tried to induce the develop developers to go into developing for the ipad and see what the yeah. real use case are so the yeah. apple watch is actually in that regard is up to how we think of it and i and, and here's something that that's I, true I, that's actually yeah. very true okay yeah. okay and, 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 and let me flip another and then let me add the second part of the theory so for all these while i always think of apple as truly a computing company I never thought of them as a technology company. So, so, so whatever products Apple make out every revolution they make, although yes, there's always a new user interface, they're inherently a computing company. So they bring computing first to the Macintosh, right? Which is a big desktop. Then they have the mouse. Yep. Then when they have the iPod, they have the click wheel where you have a digital hub to manage music. And then they have the phone, they have a touchscreen interface. And for the watch, you have the digital crown and the haptic thing, right? But truly, yeah. in all these revolutions, they're trying to condense computing into a particular interface that makes sense. So at heart, they are still a computing company, computer company. I think at their core, that's that's true. But uh, the, I think the outward appearance and how they position their product also matters. Right? Correct, right. At their they, core, I think yeah, yeah. because of the way they were founded uh, and the company culture, at, at their very core, I think they will always remain a computing company. Yep. But... We also need to see how the, how they evolve. So yeah. that kind of brings us back to uh, because on the iPad, uh, a lot of the early adopters were the Apple faithful, right? That's right. Core computing customers, and that's who developers were trying to cater to. Yeah. So in this case, if you have uh, the luxury product uh, consumers as well as uh, tech consumers with some overlap between them, that the nature of those early adopters really affects app usage uh, in terms of how engaged they are and the types of apps that get used. And that really uh, affects the evolution use cases for the category and also uh, the, the second wave of developers that come in, which means the second wave of apps that comes in. And that, that, usually, that kind of defines the, uh, the eventual use case for the product. So Correct. today we see the, Apple as a, uh, the iPad as, as a post-PC computer, right? as a lightweight computer. Mm. So, uh, and that's because a lot of the, early, the earliest customers started using it that way. So right now... Uh, what we need to watch for is how uh, probably the first wave of buyers of, of the Apple Watch use that product and who those buyers are and uh, which apps they use, which apps they don't use because that's going to make a huge difference to what the Apple Watch eventually ends up becoming. And so think Apple, I, I think... Yeah, and I think on top of that, you should also look carefully at what developers are doing with the applications on the watch. Yeah. So I think you want to watch two things, right? I, I totally agree with you. The, the buyers will be the first group of people to watch. And then the second yeah. group of people to watch is the developers. Because they're trying yeah. to let the developers to kind of imagine what you could do on yeah, that watch. Absolutely. I think absolutely true. But I think there's a subtle difference here in which the, the first wave and the second wave of developers here, uh, they might be uh, a significant difference between them. Because... Uh, we still don't know what the early adopters look like. I think the first wave of de developers will be very similar to the first wave of de developers for the, for the iPhone and the iPad. I'm talking about the nature of developers, not the nature of apps. The apps will be specific to the device. But, but you but, may also have also the, the reversal thing, right? Like, for example, I, I'll give you an example. You know, the app Flipbot is a magazine. It was done on the iPad first, right? And yep, then reverse yep. engineer into the phone. 
yeah. would you see the same situation happening? An app started off from a watch and then piped it back into the iPhone to extend the functionality where it may not even exist on the watch. It may first existed on the watch first. I think those oh. are the cases that you may want to look at. Yeah, that, I think that's an, that's an interesting question. Uh, my guess at this point, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is a pure guess, is that uh, I think a lot of uh, killer apps, so to speak, for a watch might end up relying on the se specific sensors that are built into that. Mm. And uh, when when they uh, they kind of expand to, to reach the phone, I think they might be a, a more detailed version of that, the, the same app where the data collection end still happens on the watch, uh, whereas the uh, more of the more, more of the output happens on the on the phone. Right. So I'm not sure if they'll be purely independent. I I, uh, I find it difficult to envision a an app uh, on the wrist that a developer will build specifically for the wrist and not think about developing for the iPhone unless it makes use of certain sensors. Mm. So just to to let give you kind of have a way to talk about that post that you wrote about the ten questions, which is actually your most burning top three burning questions in in the ten questions. I'd say the most important question to me is the last one, uh, which is uh, if this is uh, a a fashion product or a luxury product, depending on the kind of consumers it attracts, are we as tech observers even equipped to analyze it? I'm I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think it's a very important question because it kind of uh, the other nine questions aren't really relevant without it. Well, maybe we should start looking at those fashion analysts who's looking at Louis Vuitton and then look at how they analyze Apple. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I think we need to have uh, uh, some very long conversations with them. <laughs> the other two most important questions is a the nature of adopters between. Uh, fashion and tech and how it overlaps and third is how that affects app development. I think those are the three most important questions for this particular category. I think everything else just comes out from that. I, I saw one to so move into another question. Okay, I, I think we talk a lot about Apple and then well, I want to talk a little bit about the Asian Android market and this is a question that because it was also kind of inspired by an article that you wrote on Cy Cyanogen Mod which is okay. the open version of the Android, right? That this company yeah, has yeah. turned into into a kind of Android without the Google uh, uh, proprietary piece. So yeah, I yeah. think, what do you think that actually, how does it affect the OEMs in the Asia Android markets? Um, I'm not sure it affects the OEMs a whole lot. I think it gives them uh, an added option. I'm not sure if, uh, I think Cyanogen Moore at this stage would like to partner with uh, as many OEMs as they, as they possibly could. I think their uh, monetization model will eventually uh, hinge on the number of uh, licenses. users they have. Yeah, number of licenses. Well, not really licenses, they, don't, they aren't selling it. But the number of users using uh, Cyanogen Mod. Right. So active users, right? Mm. Uh, so in that sense, they I think they'd like to partner with, with any OEM, OEM that's out there. From, from an OEM's perspective, uh, at this stage, it might seem like it's an option to differentiate but if it's free, it means that it's basically just another Android, right? And and the fact is, outside China, uh, if you want to sell any device, whether it runs Cyanogen Mod or it runs stock Android or it runs a customized variant of another customized variant of Android, you still need to be a Google uh, Applications license licensee. Would you it's see very the, difficult? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah, it, yeah, it's very difficult to to compete with eight phones out there that sell for 
less than $200 and have the Google application suite including Google Play while you're trying to sell a phone for the same price without the application suite. Mm. Would you see something like a Cyanogen mod being acquired by one of the Asia OEMs? Say, a, uh, say Samsung or Sony? Um, Given that they need software... Well. I, I think if they want to develop their software chops, it's a good way to go as long as they you know, don't integrate uh, the acquisition. But again, that only makes sense if they want to uh, monetize services the way Xiaomi does. So if they want to try and uh, ape Xiaomi's business model, I think that's when it makes sense. If they're looking at a Cyanogen mod acquisition as a way to insulate themselves from Google, I don't think that's going to work. As, as long as you're outside China, even if, whether you're using Cyanogen Mod or MIUI or stock Android, you still need to be a Google uh, Apps licensee to be competitive. Ah, then I reverse the question for you. They're based in Seattle. So Microsoft or <laughs> Amazon could buy them too, right? Yeah, it could. And I, again, it, I, I think the same question goes for them. I, I think they get, uh, it, by buying uh, Cyanogen Mod, they'll get access to a great software stack, certainly much better than what's on the Nokia X or on the Fire Phone. But it's still uh, Amazon is still going to be using their own application ecosystem to try and get customers. Uh, Microsoft is still going to try and use their own services and their own application system to try and attract customers. So they're still going to be at a disadvantage. So the valuation of Cyanogen Mod as a company, I think, is going to be heavily dependent on what the acquirer, ex acquirer expects to do with it. So for a company like, for, for a smaller uh, Asian OEM, I think it makes a ton of sense. If, uh, if okay, Lenovo isn't exactly small, but if Lenovo wants to do this to try and compete with Xiaomi, to, uh, maybe they could use Motorola as a, uh, a division that runs, that sells stock Android phones, and Lenovo is a separate division that sells Cyanogen mod phones. As long as they're still using Google services, they can, they can try and monetize uh, a bit on services on both Motorola and Lenovo. If they want to, Pivot their business model. I think then it then it makes sense. If they don't, then I'm not so sure. So actually, whether is 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 in the U.S., Europe, or even in Asia, I, I you see Cyanogen more more as a service stack that you can monetize on, like Xiaomi, basically. Yes, yes. I, okay. I think that's the biggest value they bring to the table. That's a very that's a very interesting insight because I I, I find that um, when people think about Cyanogen more, they think of just itself as a mobile operating system. Yeah, it is, but it's also a delivery channel to a user's phone. That's, that's I think right. that's the most important point. Just a note, the conversation between Samir and me was uh, on Uber has actually not able to make it to this podcast. Uh, the reason is because there was some technical difficulty and the podcast uh, content wasn't well balanced. So in view of the quality, what we decided, to, what I decided to do was actually to shorten the content up to the conversation of such but in any case i would definitely get him back to talk about the uber question again with the logistics industries actually you missed a very very interesting conversation so um just for the readers out there if you want to find samir singh is at samir s-a-m-e-e-r underscore s-i-n-g-h 17 and his website is www dot tech dash thoughts dot net and as for me you can follow me at bleongcw or go to my blog bernardleong.com and of course you can subscribe to the rss 
an iTunes feed of Analyze Asia. We have a Twitter, which is Analyze, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia. Or you can also like us on our Facebook page. And of course, adding a few reviews in the Analyze Asia podcast page would be great as well. So uh, I will sign off and we'll, I'll definitely get some to get back to talk about this Uber conversation. And we look forward to see you in the next episode. Thank you.